Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello there. This is Lynn Perkins of the History of the Ottoman Empire. When the Ottomans finally conquered Constantinople in 1453 and put an end to the Byzantine Empire, Sultan Mehmed II became the first Ottoman sultan to take on the title of Caesar of the Roman Empire, which was to be understood to have all the glory of the past emperors and was also meant to declare the Ottomans' belief that they were a continuation of the Roman Empire, a belief that was not shared with the West. The Ottomans had built their military traditions off the constant conflict with the Greek Empire and the Byzantine influence would reverberate throughout Ottoman history. So after you listen to Robin's excellent telling of the history of Byzantium, please come over and check out my podcast on the history of the Ottoman Empire. Thank you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 106, Mother and Uncle. Last time, we said goodbye to the Emperor Theophilus and to Iconoclasm. Theophilus's son, Michael, was just two years old when his father died, so for the first 14 years of his reign, others would rule for him. As we discussed last time, a regency council was set up, dominated by Theodora, the empress, and the eunuch Theoctistus. Theodora relied on this experienced official, just as Irene had once lent on Stavrakios. Only a eunuch could be invested with so much power, and be trusted not to threaten her son's succession. In fact, Theoctistos became her de facto prime minister during this period, after she fell out with her brothers, Bardas and Patronus. This seems to have happened immediately when two military campaigns planned by Theoctistos ended in failure. In that summer of 843, the eunuch prepared a fleet and sailed to Crete. The restoration of the island to imperial control would be a massive propaganda boost to the restored icons. However, despite making a successful landing, the eunuch left the armada behind to return to the capital and protect his political position. In his absence, the expedition was defeated by the Arabs and had to abandon their foothold. 
Meanwhile, in Anatolia, Theoctistos hastily led out the Tachmata to face down an Arab raid. Though caliphal support was being withdrawn from the annual jihad, the border commanders still intended to continue their traditional way of life. This attack was led by Amr, the emir of Melitene, the border town in Armenia. Theoctistos met him in Bithynia, but was defeated when some Byzantine troops deserted. The eunuch blamed both defeats on the interference of the empress's brothers. Bardas and Petronas were both fine soldiers, and whether they had sabotaged Theoctistus or not, Theodora expelled them from the palace and trusted them with no further imperial responsibilities. She knew her brothers well, and they were both ambitious men. She knew that the patriarchal Byzantines might be persuaded to look to one of them to take charge of the regency, so it was best that they were removed from sight. Only a few incidents stand out from the next decade of Byzantine government. To further uphold the new orthodoxy established by the return of the icons, Theodora cracked down hard on the Paulicians. The heretical Christian sect living in eastern Anatolia were now targeted by theme troops. They were ordered to either convert or be killed, and apparently many died in the process. Thousands fled their homes and followed their leader Carveus as he made his way across the border into Armenia. There, Amr allowed him to settle lands around the fortress of Tefriki under the emir's protection. The Paulicians would now join the Arabs on their raids of Anatolia. Forcing Roman citizens to abandon the empire was hardly good news, but compliance to orthodoxy was seen as necessary to demonstrate the state's commitment to its restored ideology. So if we try to see the positives in this aggressive bigotry, then at least it forced the Paulicians to either submit or declare themselves as enemies, who could then be defeated on the field of battle. In 847, the patriarch Methodius died and had to be replaced. As we discussed last episode, Methodius had angered the Studite monks by allowing former iconoclast bishops to remain at their posts. This issue had continued to fester, suggesting that the Studites represented a wider body of opinion. Theodora wanted peace in the church, and so a candidate acceptable to the rigorists, or extremists as some historians call them, would be ideal but she didn't want the new archbishop to actually start sacking clergy left and right, so she needed someone pliable. She found a suitable candidate amongst the pool of retired imperial family members. This was Nicetus, the son of the emperor Michael Ragave. You remember Michael. He was the son-in-law of Nicephorus, who led the army so poorly against Crum that he voluntarily stood aside for Leo the Armenian. As you may also recall, Leo had Michael's sons castrated. 
As horrific as that is, it was meant to save the boys from being the targets of later coups, which it did. Nicetus spent his life in comfortable exile in a monastery and was therefore both devout and disconnected from contemporary politics. Theodora wanted to avoid public argument, so rather than hold a formal church council, she simply appointed him. He became the patriarch Ignatius, the name he'd taken along with his monastic vows, but unfortunately, by bypassing church rules, Theodora created a problem which would manifest itself down the line. In 848, another attempt to intervene in Sicily ended in failure. The Arabs had captured Messina in the east of the island, bringing them dangerously close to the Byzantine capital of Syracuse. On the eastern frontier, though, things looked under control. Ali, the emir of Tarsus in Cilicia, raided for three summers in a row between 851 and 854, but the Roman response was strong. Theodora actually sent a fleet to sack the Egyptian city of Damietta in retaliation, as well as sending land forces across the mountains in 855 to sack the Cilician town of Anazabas, taking thousands of prisoners. This significant success demonstrates Byzantine confidence returning. It had now been a decade since the disaster at Amorium, and the border commanders of Anatolia were starting to realize that the Arabs were vulnerable. Their forces weren't as large as they had once been, and they were becoming susceptible to counterattack. That same year, Michael turned 15 and Theodora decided to find him a wife while she could still influence the decision. She was deeply unhappy with his choice of mistress. Eudocia Ingerina was the daughter of a Viking courtier in imperial service. Apparently, she did not show the empress due respect and seemed an inappropriate consort for the future emperor. So instead, Theodora chose another Eudocia, Eudocia Decapolis, the daughter of a court official, who Michael dutifully married. However, in echoes of Irene and Constantine, the situation seems to have damaged the relationship between mother and son. You may remember that Constantine VI did not like his mother's choice of bride either. Michael was not intimidated by his mother, though, he kept up a public marriage, but behind closed doors remained devoted to his mistress. The mistrust between mother and son seems to be a natural result of the tension that accompanies the boy's coming of age. Theodora had no intention of holding him back the way Irene had done. But she and Theoctistus had governed capably for 13 years now, she probably wanted to ease her son into office rather than hand him the reins all at once. Michael was vulnerable to those who told him that the powerful eunuch would not fully share power with him. One of those doing the whispering was Uncle Bardas. The Empress's brother managed to fill his nephew's head with paranoid thoughts, and given what happened to Constantine the Sixth, 
it wasn't too hard to believe that the prince might not receive his full inheritance. A few months before his 16th birthday, Michael invited Bardas to the palace, and with a couple of fellow conspirators, they cornered the old eunuch and murdered him. It's not clear if the intention was just to banish him and things went wrong, or if the plan was most foul from the start. Either way, Theoctistus lay dead, and Bardas would soon be promoted to fill the vacuum. Theodora was horrified by the news. Her position was gravely weakened, and to be betrayed by her brother and son was deeply hurtful. Michael tried to make peace, but she was inconsolable for months, and tried to maintain her residence in the palace, until eventually she was forcibly evicted. Michael was now acclaimed emperor in his own right, Michael III. But unlike his father, who had governed energetically at 16, Michael preferred to let Bardas handle the business of government. Bardas was only too pleased and promoted several members of his family into key positions, including his brother Patronus, to the post of Stratigos of the Thracisians. That summer, Bardas gathered up the Tachmata in response to an Arab raid and led them on a daring counterattack. He took his men deep into the caliphate, capturing slaves and booty as they went, all the way to the city of Amida, once upon a time one of the great Syrian cities which resisted various Sassanid invasions. It was the furthest a Roman army had ever been into the caliphate. Having established himself with a flourish, Bardas would go on to rule for the next decade, a busier period than the previous one. Michael doesn't seem to have been entirely passive during this time. It's possible that he simply took up the Theodora role, leaving Bardas to play Theoctistus. Out on the Eastern Front, the Byzantines slowly found themselves in the unusual position of being the superior military force in the region. It took time for this realisation to dawn, but a series of campaigns under Bardas's direction paved the way. Michael joined his uncle on a raid around Melitene in 859, and was preparing to join another campaign the following year. However, as Michael's forces got ready to face down Ali of Tarsus in Cappadocia, a breathless rider appeared with alarming news. Constantinople was under attack. Back at the capital, the sleepy summer silence was broken abruptly on June the 18th, when an enemy fleet appeared from the Black Sea. It was the Rus, the Viking raiders from Scandinavia. We'll talk more about them at the end of the century, but these Scandinavian strongmen had found a natural home on the waterways of future Russia. These rivers took them down to the rich markets of Byzantium and the Caliphate, where they could trade furs and slaves. We know they'd begun to trade and raid the northern Anatolian coast because of the creation 
of a theme of Paphlagonia to defend the capital's grain supply. However, no serious attack was even dreamt of. The Byzantine fleet were out in the Mediterranean, and most of the Tachmata were away with Michael. The city was scarily defenceless, aside from its mighty walls, of course. Rus traders at the capital may have been acting as spies and tipped off their brethren in the north. It doesn't seem likely that this perfect timing was a coincidence. The Rus spread out and enjoyed themselves raiding both the European and the Asian suburbs of the city, together with the small islands nearby. Inside Constantinople, there was real panic, as no one had any experience of the Rus and weren't sure what their intentions were. These wild-looking, red-haired men yelling in an incomprehensible language were a frightening sight. The walls were nervously manned, and the patriarch gave sermons asking the people to repent of their sins to avert God's wrath. As usual, the virgin's relics were paraded along the walls, and soon afterwards the Rus packed up and left. The trail of destruction they left behind was not pretty. In the short term... Michael's response was to send an embassy to the Khazars to see why the Rus had been able to make it through their lands so easily. But in the long term, it was clear that Khazar power was waning and the Romans needed a new ally in the north to protect their flank. With Michael dashing home that summer, though, it turned into a free-for-all for Arab raiders. Ali continued his attack on Cappadocia, while Amr and Karveas invaded from the north and penetrated deep into the Armenia Khan. Further south, the Arab fleet of Tarsus launched a surprise attack on the HQ of the Kiviriotone, and the Cretan Arabs attacked the Peloponnese. According to one source, over 20,000 head of livestock were stolen in that year alone along with an unknown number of prisoners. However accurate those numbers are, it was just another horrible day to be a citizen of Anatolia. Any suggestion that things were getting better would not have been welcome. And yet they were. Three years later, Michael and Bardas were undistracted when news came of another major raid. On the road to Ancyra, Amr's army from Melatine were met by theme troops. A fierce battle took place with Amr's men getting the better of it and pushing their way north to Amisos on the Black Sea coast, which they sacked. However, Bardas had mobilized every contingent available. He now arrived from the west, dragging the Tachmata, some European soldiers and the Thracisians with him. The Armeniacon garrisoned the path to the east, and the Anatolicon troops who'd just been bypassed blocked the road south. Amr was trapped. His men urged him to make a break for it to see if he could slip through the lines. But he refused. The Romans outnumbered him two or even three to one. The Arabs stood and fought, but they were wiped out. Only one column escaped, led by Amr's son, 
but the troops from Charcianum cut them off and captured him. With a huge surge of confidence, the theme troops were given permission to raid Melatine's territory immediately. Ali of Tarsus had just arrived there and was shocked to be met by an invading force. He was killed in the fighting as the Romans plundered their way across the countryside. Either in one of these skirmishes or from natural causes, Carveas, the Paulician leader, also perished. Bardas returned home with the most astonishing list of accomplishments to his name. Michael granted him a triumph and displayed the prisoners to the Hippodrome crowd. What is sometimes called the Battle of Bishop's Meadow has been pointed to as another turning point in a century full of them. It comes 20 years after the sack of Amorium and acts like the other end of a seesaw in a strange children's playground analogy for this shift in international relations. Though Arab raids will continue, the power of Melatine has been curbed for the time being, and the next 50 years of Byzantine history will see successive Roman generals push forward, slowly becoming the aggressor rather than the defender on the Eastern Front. Back at home, a series of events led to a major squabble with the papacy and the conversion of the Bulgars to Christianity. It began, apparently, with Bardas's personal life. He'd left his wife for his daughter-in-law, so the story goes. One of his sons had died, Bardas had fallen for his widow, and so on. This scandal might have been ignored, but the church considered this act incestuous, and Ignatius, a principled rather than a political patriarch, refused communion to the virtual prime minister. Bardas, unhappy with this embarrassment, looked for a pretext to get rid of the meddling prelate. A plot was uncovered not long afterward, hatched by the Empress Theodora, to assassinate her brother. The general ordered Ignatius to tonsure her and her daughters, who were living together in a local convent. Again, Ignatius refused, on the grounds that no one should be compelled into a monastic life. Bardas convinced Michael that the patriarch was still working with his mother, and Ignatius was compelled to leave his post and return to his monastery. What gave this incident some cover was the fact that Ignatius had not been elected by a properly convened church council. Despite this, Ignatius's supporters were unhappy, and they complained to the Pope. In the meantime, Bardas tapped up his friend Photius to become the new patriarch. Photius was one of the most learned men of his day, and would go on to demonstrate his amazing intellect in a number of roles. He was a beneficiary of the promotion of learning which Theophilus had encouraged, and had held a number of important jobs in the palace. 
He was a layman, and so, like Tarasius before him, was rushed through the roles of lector, subdeacon, deacon, and priest within one week before being made patriarch on Christmas Day, 858. Despite being ushered through the proper channels, sort of, the rigorists were deeply unhappy with his appointment, and recognising the controversy they'd created, Michael and Bardas agreed to allow the Pope to send delegates to investigate the issue. The self-confident Pope Nicholas I saw this as an opportunity to press Rome's jurisdictional claims to southern Italy and Illyricum, the same issue that has rumbled on since the time of Leo III. But Bardas and Photius were not interested in waiting for months on end for the delegates to send back details to Nicholas and for Nicholas to write back with questions and so on. So the two Italian priests were asked to make a decision on the spot at a church council held in 861. The delegates looked at the issue and decided that Ignatius had been uncanonically appointed, whereas Photius's elevation was correct. Michael's regime were very satisfied with this result and had no interest in discussing jurisdictional issues. When Pope Nicholas heard about this, he excommunicated the delegates and held his own council in 863, which concluded that Photius's election was the one which was invalid. This angered Michael and led to a famous exchange of letters. In his missive to the Pope, the Emperor referred to the Latin language as a barbarian tongue. Nicholas replied that if that was the case, then why did Michael call himself Emperor of the Romans? Needless to say, these negotiations got nowhere. The whole issue became far more complicated, though, when the Bulgar Khan Boris announced to the world that he was going to convert to Christianity. We'll catch up with the Balkans in detail at the end of the century. But the Bulgars have spent the last few decades expanding the Khanate and struggling with the issue of how to create a state out of a disparate realm filled with Slav tribes, ex-Romans and a steppe warrior elite. Many theories have been put forward as to why Boris made this move now, His sister had spent some time in Constantinople as a hostage and may have become a Christian there. Boris was also close to a Byzantine monk who'd been captured by his armies. But politically, it was a move that made a lot of sense. It would gain recognition for what I'm about to start calling Bulgaria on the international stage. To become a Christian kingdom would transform relations with the neighbouring Franks and Romans bringing his people into a wider community of theoretically friendly states. Also, if his people were converted, it would help create a Bulgarian identity and transform Boris himself from simply chief noble amongst a class of equals to God's vice-regent on earth. Boris's initial contacts were with the Franks, He asked for them to send missionaries to instruct his people in the faith. 
This was a shrewd move, as Latin clergy would be pretty isolated once they'd travelled to Bulgaria. He was afraid if he turned to Constantinople that their priests would work against his interests on behalf of their Byzantine masters. However, when news reached Constantinople that Western priests were operating in Bulgar territory, Bardas decided to act decisively. Fresh from his triumphs in the east, he loaded the Tachmata onto the fleet and landed them at Mesembria on an unguarded border. Boris's army was away in the west, so he was extremely vulnerable to this sudden Byzantine invasion. Not much blood was shed, though, as Boris sent word that he would acquiesce and accept Byzantine missionaries instead. In 864, a special mission was sent by Photius, which formally baptised the Khan as a Christian prince. He took the new name Michael, as the emperor was his official sponsor. Though, for obvious reasons, I'll continue to call him Boris. Greek-speaking priests now arrived at Pliska and began to organise a Bulgarian church. This was a very significant moment for Byzantium, but it wasn't to be that easy. For the average Bulgarian, the situation was confused. One of the reasons Christianity had spread was the large number of ex-Romans living in the Balkans. Doubtless, they held their own church services and practised the faith in one way. Then in came Latin priests to teach a slightly different liturgy, and now Greek clergy arrived to put that right. Boris, anxious that his new project would not be ruined by minutiae, wrote to Photius asking for guidance. Apparently he had 115 questions about Christian practice. He was determined to do this right. Unfortunately, the Byzantines had no experience of actual missionary work. So Photius wrote back with a long treatise on church history and the duties of a Christian leader. It was unhelpful and demonstrated an inflexibility at dealing with the people arriving fresh at Jesus' door. On the ground, too, confusion was matched with resentment. Many Bulgars had spent their lives dealing with the Byzantines as their enemies. Now their bossy clerics were ordering them to change their ways. Boris decided to turn again to the Latin church. He sent his list of questions to Pope Nicholas, who replied far more sympathetically. Byzantine churchmen were busy enforcing obscure rules, like refusing communion to men with their belts unfastened. Nicholas could see an opportunity, and so tried to reassure Boris about which traditional practices would be allowed to continue, and which needed to cease. Boris was satisfied and welcomed Latin clergy back to Pliska while expelling the Byzantines. These disgruntled priests returned to Constantinople and reported to Photius that there were many strange practices being taught by the Westerners. The most serious was that the Nicene Creed had been altered. This statement of faith had been agreed on back at the earliest ecumenical councils, but now apparently the Latin missionaries had added a phrase to it. 
I won't get into specifics right now, but Photius convened a small church council in 867 to condemn these practices. And further, he declared that Pope Nicholas should be deposed for this and for his interference in the Byzantine church. This is, of course, the latest and most damaging chapter in the story of how Eastern and Western churches broke apart. With Frankish protection, the popes now felt comfortable telling an outside power like the Bulgarians that they were the undisputed leader of the Christian world and the claims of New Rome could be ignored. Whereas Photius argued that the Pentarchy, the shared rule of Rome, Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch and Jerusalem was still in effect, though reading between the lines the patriarch who mattered most was the one who lived next door to the emperor, God's vice-regent. The incendiary excommunications, though, were soon to be overtaken by events. First, Pope Nicholas died, and then the Emperor Michael was murdered. The dispute between Eastern and Western churches will continue next episode, but for now, we must leave things there. Next time, I will actually get into why Michael is so often known as the drunkard, why his reputation has been so smeared by our Byzantine historians, and why he was murdered by his best friend. For now, though, it's worth reflecting that the 25 years of his rule were a fairly successful time for the empire. After the sack of Amorium, things improved significantly, and his mother and uncle governed well. If you're looking for something to listen to in the meantime, then check out Lynn Perkins's History of the Ottoman Empire. This will give you a head start on learning about the Turkish presence in Anatolia, or sniff sniff the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Check it out in the usual places, or go to historyoftheottomanempire.squarespace.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 